0: Hey, you're not going to bed yet, are you? That's right. It's time for TV Good, Sleep Bad.
1: TV is awesome!
0: Here are your hosts, Daniel Lackey and Elwood Jones.
2: Hello, my fellow podcast nation, and welcome to not only our 12th episode, but our first anniversary of TV Good Sleep Bad. And today, if you've not guessed already, we are taking a political stance as we are going to be looking at two politically themed episodes. First of all, we'll be looking at The Prisoner, as well as looking at an episode of Master of Horror. Uh, in particular the episode Homecoming, directed by Joe Dante, in which zombie soldiers return from the dead to vote against the current president. But here on the uh, sh- the show, as always, I am joined by my co-host and partner in crime, Mr. Daniel Lackey.
0: I would not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. As we said, this
2: is our one-year anniversary of doing uh, TV Good Sleep Bad, and even though we're celebrating one year and we've done been a monthly podcast it means we've only done 12 episodes but i feel that over those 12 episodes we've covered such a wide range of shows just with the selections yeah. i mean we've obviously looked at things such as mr show so we've done sort of outlaw comedy we've done the sort of jerry anderson puppetry of things like dick spanner pi i mean we've even like looked at a bunch of Keiju sort of things with things like Ultraman and uh, Ultra Q. So it's been an w- interesting sort of journey so far, and I feel that we've only sort of s- started to scrape the surface of this cool TV vein that we're sort of tapping into. I mean, has there been any particular shows that you've enjoyed looking at more than others at all? Or?
0: I'm always a sucker for discussing Doctor Who The X-Files. I was, I was really pleased when we had a, a chance to discuss those two. The one I think that really kind of stood out was the episode where we did uh, Dark Season in Sapphire and Steel. Okay, partially, partially just for the the privilege of, of almost breaking Jay Cluett, but <laughs> um, that's just such—I mean, just such a, a certain sort of interesting kind of subset of television. And those are really kind of my my favorite episodes, is when we really kind of get like a good combination of like two things that really sort of weirdly go together and from the sort of bizarre nooks and crannies, another one that stands out I think we did uh was it when we did the um the Japanese Spider Man and we paired it up with msd three K?
2: Oh no uh, Japanese I, I can't remember what's, now what, what we what's paired. What's yeah, it was Ultraman that we paired up um we paired up with K. three k And for myself that I think that was one of my favorite episodes that we've done just right. because it was just so funny to hear both yourself and uh Brian the last angry nerd to, to obviously try and explain Ultraman to an audience that wasn't familiar with it and just the sheer randomness of that that whole particular episode from The Subtle Reporter car that's like got the monster face on it and oh yeah the fact that you when we had the scene with the fisherman who basically decided that the best way to fish a overstock lake is to poison the lake.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I think there was just so many great moments in that, and especially in the MS-T3K uh, episode.
1: Yeah. Itself,
2: there was, that in itself, there was enough randomness in that without adding Ultraman to it, but it was just nice how it sort of paired up. And the other show which sort of stood out for me was Watching Mr. Show, uh-huh. and in particular the landlord sketch, because there's so many lines from that particular sketch which... I still find myself quoting, uh, <laughs> such as, I cannot shut down the sun.
0: <laughs> Victor, is Victor down to fix the sun? I cannot get that high. I, I mean, yeah, it, it's just one of those things where it, 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 it hit me immediately. And is the, the thing that I always associate with Mr. Show. Is that to me, anybody mentions Mr. Show, it, it's, I'm, the thing that's immediately going to jump into my head is David Cross. And Paul Tompkins singing, I laugh at your shit, I spit on your shit, I laugh at your I fart at your shit, I laugh at your fart, we are friends again. Hey, while, you know, Bob Odenkirk just sort of skulks off, you know, miserably. And John Anna's just, sister, looks like he cannot believe what's going on. I mean, it's just, that is that is the essence of Mr. Show to me. Yeah. The best Mister Show episodes you just have this sort of, kind of what the hell am I watching, element to them.
2: Oh, definitely so. And I've recently just uh, decided to actually finish off watching the Netflix series that they did. The it was sort of a mini series, really. Should we say?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um,
2: and I was watching the sketch where they're running the dry cleaning, and yeah. it goes from being in a dry cleaners to writing an off-Broadway comedy uh, musical about rooms in a house.
0: Uh-huh. And
2: just how they, piece, how they go from one thing to the other. I think it's just the genius of them. And as we, think we said a few episodes back, that I never, that that particular show gave me something that I never thought, realized that I wanted to see. And that was the Pope on a quad giving the finger. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Bob Odenkirk Bob Odenkirk and his goal to become the first Jewish pope.
2: <laughs> yeah, and it's like I never knew I wanted to see see this until they showed it me on the show. And it was uh-huh. sort of like it's sort of like this is what I've been waiting to see all my life and it's finally happened. So Right. Um I really hope that they do another season for Netflix because it's it's so unlike everything else and Netflix has really sort of tapped into this vein of doing the sort of independent sort of uh, fringe sort of comedy specials when right. you look at like the shows that they put out such as like Master of None and Love right um, and then you've obviously got the Bob and Dave uh, sort of mini and it's sort of just on the edge of that again so it'd be really nice if they come back and they give them another season to obviously play on it I mean I've enjoyed all the sort of comedy sort of shows that, that they've been putting out I think they've all brought something different. They haven't just gone with any particular sort of theme or style. They've all sort of come and, uh, given something different. And I've been left at the end of each season wanting more. So, um, as yet, we've only had sort of like the, uh, irrepressible Kimmy Schmidt, which has had its second season, which I'm still working my way through. So I would really love for these other comedy shows that Netflix has been sort of pushing, uh, to obviously see, see more seasons from them. So, uh, but at the moment, it's kind of like a wait and see uh, as to what's going to happen there.
0: Right. I I had read recently an interview with with David Cross where he said they they want to do another season. They do want to do another run of with Bob and David, and it really just depends on um, their scheduling because Odin Kirk obviously has um, Better Call Saul, and David Cross is. Um, I think David Cross was in Britain recently launching a new... I, I think, that is it the increasingly poor decisions of Todd Margaret? Yep. I think that's the show that he was doing for in Britain. I, I, had th- I know that had come to an end. Um, or I thought I heard that it had come to an end. But I guess he was launching a new project in Britain? Okay. I could be wrong. I'm
2: not too sure. because I, I mean, I watched the first episode of Todd Margaret. And then, because of its scheduling, I kept missing missing it and i just never picked it up since but yeah i mean the first episode of tom margaret was like so dark um i wasn't really sure where it was gonna go but it's kind of like that sort of area of comedy that uncomfortable comedy that he kind of uh specializes in and, and right so uh, he's done another special for netflix i think uh let's make america great let's make, again make america great again yeah um and he's got a book which is on my amazon wish list um This is the reason I drink, I believe it's called.
0: Something like that, yeah.
2: Um, Which, you know, hopefully someone will pick up for me. Um, (laughs) Or someone send it to me, you know. Mm -hmm. Hint, hint. (laughs) But yeah, as I said, I think it's... uh, It'd be interesting to obviously see it, but as you said, it's it's all down to scheduling at the end of the day, and these are two guys which are not just doing the one thing, they're doing all these different projects, and their range is so diverse... Uh Uh-huh. ...that... It kind of makes me like. On one hand, I want to obviously see more of uh, Bob and David, but at the same time, I, I'm interested to see what they're going to do next with right. their individual careers. Because obviously, Better Call Um, and obviously, just the whole Breaking Bad run was fascinating to to obviously watch. And obviously, with what David's been doing as well, it's with things such as like Arrested like Development and obviously Tom right. regrets and stuff. So, it's uh, it's great to them working together, and it's. It's greater still when they're apart. So uh, yeah, I'm never sure what, where my de- sort of uh, devotion really lies at the moment. Right, so. right. But uh, whatever they do, I'll be excited to see it.
0: Yeah, whenever I hear one of them has got a project up, like 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 something like a little bit more personal, because you know Cross does take some you know work for hire stuff. He you know he's been kind of land based for he his appearances. I think in the 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 Alvin and the Chipmunks films. Um but most of the time, when I hear one of them has something up that that they're like actually a creative force behind i was I was so excited. I remember when Odenkirk joined the regular cast of Breaking Bad back in in 2010 or 2011. I basically I remember thinking, okay, this is the point which he the, I, I get the thing about him that I've always known proven.
2: Yeah I think uh, so Goodman was for myself the real the reason that I stuck with Breaking Bad. Uh-huh. And everyone else was sort of going off the dark end or they were like spiraling into addiction or the characters were being perhaps written in ways I wasn't appreciating. Um, right. So Goodman throughout the whole run was just fantastic from start to finish. Right. I think, uh, was it Skinny Pete? I think it was the the only Skinny other... Skinny Pete
0: and Badger, yeah. Jesse's friends.
2: Yeah, I think uh, they were the only other ones, but again... They really were kind the, of faced out towards the end, right?
0: The, um, the 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 kind of like the comic relief characters,
2: exactly. Um, Where Saul Goodman, the fact that he was constantly able to weasel his way out, and here's the guy like basically operating his law law office like next to a dry cleaners or or whatnot, yeah. Like, but he's able to go toe to toe with like the best there is. Um, uh-huh. He's sort of like found this. He's this guy who's found his niche. And he's basically willing to just work it any way he can. Right. Um, but I mean, I just I think I just any time he was on the screen, it was just you knew it was going to be just something something great was going to happen. Yeah. And I think it was just a credit to the writers, the fact that they made to managed to keep his character strong throughout. I've yet to call watch Better Call Soul, um, so I've got no idea how it turns out without. I've, but.
0: Really, really enjoyed it so far. I don't know if I would say I like it as much as I liked Breaking Bad, but it it really, it they really, it's a very sharp point, and 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 it it has its it's not as perhaps overtly, it's dark. It it, it it's definitely more comical and a little bit more sharply satirical. But there's a point at the beginning of, of um. Breaking Bad, where I, I I shouldn't say you don't, but I wasn't sure what direction it was like the first couple seasons, okay, where I wasn't quite sure where things were going, you know, where where it, I, I'm thinking this could go really dark, this could go really dark and dramatic, or this could go any kind of like a a, a dark comedy, and it definitely does go, you know, with the with the exception of like I said, the, you know, as we mentioned, Badger and Skinny Pete, and um. The, the, the comic relief characters um, and even a couple of, like the later comic relief characters like Hewell it does for the most part remain fairly you know dramatic yeah and I don't necessarily think that Dark, uh, Better Call Saul is necessarily more comedic but it is more satirical and it does kind of show you what breaking the other direction Breaking Bad could have gone um, yeah. and it's, it's, it's like I said it's very sharp Um, very well acted. Bob Odenkirk really, really holds the thing together very well. Jonathan Banks is in it, and and he's a a welcome presence from the old show. And has it? It has its callbacks to Breaking Bad, but it stands on its own. Yeah, you know, it's. uh, But I, I, I've been really digging it.
2: Mm. I think since Breaking Bad has come out, and a lot of people obviously going back and looking at Bryan Cranston's filmography. Uh, when you look back and you see his appearances like on the x-files and you see him on Uh seinfeld and you see him on obviously malcolm in the middle and you see his range and he's 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 like a human chameleon he's one of these actors who can switch from one extreme to the other with like seemingly the utmost ease and i just i love the fact that when the writers of the uh, the Exiles, when they saw the episode, they did cast him in the episode Drive, and then he later turned up in Malcolm in the Middle. And I remember him right. saying, "It's like, wow, well, this guy can do comedy as well." And I'm thinking, well, obviously you didn't see him in Seinfeld because he was doing comedy then. He was the dentist who becomes Jewish just for the jokes. Right. Uh, before he obviously did uh, Exiles, but I think uh, only I think Breaking Bad finally gave him that platform for him to be recognized as an actor. Yeah. Um, and obviously, because of that, he's now obviously been given all these different dramatic roles, and I think it, in many ways it's kind of hampered him because it's meant that whenever we now see Brian Canson's in something, we assume instantly that he's going to be a main presence. And I know a lot of people were pissed with the recent Godzilla remake, the fact that he wasn't the main character and the fact that he got bumped right. off quite early right. on. Breaking Bad, I mean, it's, I think it's still a show people want to talk about. And, uh, yeah, it's, I, I don't know. I think I need to put some distance between myself and the show and give it like a couple of years and then come back and look at it afresh and see how it holds up. Because I think uh-huh. at the moment we're still, we're still kind of buzzing off of what it was. The same with The Wire. It's, yeah. But they sort of, sense that it's ingrained in our pop culture at the moment so it, it, it's one kind of those
0: it's like the. i would say it's like the sopranos yeah and the wire is the same way where it's gonna be a while before we've kind of like cleansed the more overt we're starting to do this now we've kind of cleansed series the the, the sort of tendencies uh, to the more Breaking bad tendencies from series, and, and we can, where you're going to watch a, a series and you're going to say, this reminds me of Breaking Bad. Same thing happened with The Wire. Same thing happened with The Sopranos. And I'm sure same thing's going to happen with Game of Thrones in a couple of years when that's over.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, it's just right now, uh, the, the influence that Breaking Bad had on tele- how you tell a serial drama was just so obvious and so overt that, it's, it's just going to take a while for that to just work its way out.
2: Yeah, definitely. But obviously, before we get into our uh, selections for this evening, we might as well obviously discuss what else we've been watching at the moment. I mean, what's been sort of holding your interest uh, since the previous show? Um,
0: all right, I can't... I, I don't remember... Did I mention Stranger Things on the last show?
2: I believe that you did mention Stranger Things. I've okay. yet to still watch it. I'm one of those few people haven't sort of instantly gone and watched the whole series in one sitting, so...
0: Yeah. Okay, other than that, I haven't really been watching a whole lot. I've gotten the, the um, you know, some of my, my other personal life projects have been kind of ramping up a little bit, um, and just it's just been also kind of um, not a whole lot of stuff, new stuff to watch, so a lot of what I've been kind of doing is catching up. I've been making my way slowly... Um, but steadily through the first season of Mr. Robot, I'm about, I think I'm on about episode four or five now of the first season. Okay. And that's um, that's really interesting. And I'm, I'm really, really, it, it's something that I don't think I can. It, it's something that I, I, I find it extremely interesting and extremely fascinating, and yet I, I don't have the urge to sit down and like binge it. Okay. Um, I think it's a great I think it's a great concept. I think it's great execution. I, I really love the idea behind the, the protagonist. It's the the, the 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 somewhat unreliable narrator. Yeah um, Elliot, I think he's a fascinating character, and I can't remember the actor's name, but he's brilliant in the part. Um, Christian slater is, is is I don't ever think I would have ever thought of of Christian Slater as being an actor who could pull something like this off. I'm really impressed with him here. It's got a great score, but for whatever reason, I just can't bring myself to, like, go through and binge it. Yeah. Um, So there's been that. Now, several years ago, uh, I watched the first season of Black Books on Netflix. And before I could get my way to the second series, it got pulled from Netflix, and I was informed this week that it's back on Netflix, so I did a binge of um, I did a binge of second series, uh, Black Books earlier in the week. That is an amazing show. I really, it, it's one of the things. It has there's like this kind comes from this kind of I think sense same kind of sensibility. Now, if I remember correctly, one of the co-creators of um, Black Books, although he's not on the second series, is Graham Linehan, who. Also created Father Ted, which I haven't seen, and the IT Crowd.
2: Yeah, um, um, that's that's great. I mean, Father Ted's another huge cult cool series over here in the UK. Um, the same as the same as the IT Crowd. Um, and yeah, Father, Father Ted is one is is very surreal and very much of its time uh, because obviously that would be. See, yeah, that's going to be obviously the mid 90s when Father Ted came out. It's this wonderfully surreal <laughs> vision of Ireland, um, and this where you've got these free priests um, on Craggy Island, and they're basically trying to deal with like the crazy locals and uh, all these sort of very surreal sort of problems. Um, there's one particular episode where this this singing presenter who basically appeals to to the older generation that comes on the island and causes this zombie-like gathering of old oaps outside the house because they're all oh, no. determined to to some, to get a hold of this uh, presenter guy and it's it's such a bizarre show i don't want to like try and describe it too much because obviously i feel that it's one of the shows you have to watch and then see for yourself
1: uh-huh
2: and i feel that if i try to describe it too much i may either, like, make it sound awful or just oversell it, which is obviously something I don't want to do. But I feel that it's going to certainly appeal to yourself being, like, uh-huh. a fan of, like, things such as, like, The Young Ones um, and, like, that sort of, like, uh, early 90s, late 80s sort of outlaw comedy it's, it's very much in that sort of vein, if perhaps not to the same extremes. Right. Um, but, no, I think, I feel with your your taste as the as an anglophile i think you you certainly get a kick out of it
0: uh-huh.
2: more um, so if you like black books especially yeah um black books and the main character in black books bernard black i did spend most of my border's career trying to model my management style after him <laughs>
0: <laughs> <That's crazy. laughs>
2: well, i would just like basically uh-huh. just like be abusive to everyone and because when you watch black books and you see, all the, see the stupidity they have to deal with. And anyone who's worked in the book selling industry will tell you how true it is. We yeah. have people come in and it's like, I want a book, but I don't know the who it's by or I don't know the title, but it's like a blue book.
0: And it's like, well, <laughs> that just
2: narrows it down to a few thousand copies. It's
0: like the bookshop sketch, the old Monty Python bookshop sketch, where yeah. it's trying to describe this book to, to get to for. Uh, um, Graham Chapman's trying to describe this book to, to, to get a uh, John Cleese to sell him and it, it ultimately turns out the end in it, it typically Monty Python can't read it, it turns out that Graham Chapman's character in the sketch can't read <laughs> so it ends up ends up with John Cleese reading a uh, uh, Ethel I think it's the Ethel the Art of Art goes quantity survey
1: uh, the,
2: but no black books has been a constant source of Bits that I like, I've constantly used. Uh, there's an episode where they turn the bookshop into a gastro pub.
0: Yes, yes, and I watched that this week.
2: And um, he makes a comment about about making making a Tara soup. And <laughs> a was, tower
0: of soup. And yeah. it's like
2: I've I've been there's been a number of times when I've been like cooking with my mum and it's sort of like we've got to make this fancy. It's like make a Tara soup. Things always coming towers. Yeah. Um and it's so sort of like
0: this the, the part where bill bailey goes out he's holding a couple of things and he just goes and he just sort of like gets shunted into this bookstore and you don't even see what happens in the bookstore and he just like and he comes out and it's like holding like two bags it was hilarious yeah this
2: this idea of cuz they basically parody the um like the borders and the waterstones right idea of what a bookshop is the fact that you go in and there's like coffee and muffins and all of these things that have nothing to do with books, but you feel now compelled that they have to be there now we've
0: yeah I, I mean I went on a date last week at a Barnes and noble bookstore because we don't have board borders went out of business but it's like they have a Starbucks in the Barnes and noble and I'm like well i mean I, I was familiar with that it was like wow but yeah that um I always did that 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 was a great episode I, th- I think it was like the first three or four episodes of the second series I, I covered this week. the the one I think was my absolute favorite was the one where um, Fran gets into a uh, Fran gets into an argument with her landlord because her walls are being pushed in to make room for another flat. So Bernard, did, she hires Bernard to be her lawyer, and Bernard kind of falls for the guy, the the woman who's in the new flat. And he, he wants a summer girlfriend, and he's describing the summer girlfriend. She'll have hair, and she'll do summery things like play tennis. And in the autumn, I'll dump her because she's my summer girl.
2: <laughs> uh, I, I mean, Bernard Black is just this monstrous character. It's just,
0: watching, watching him tie to for it was like, it, it, it's hilarious. It's just its just so do you eat? Would you like to try it? So do I. Would you like to try it in the same room sometime?
2: Yeah, just uh, this idea of this this failed writer who's so assured of his own genius, yet his lot in life has been reduced to working in this bookshop that Despite the fact he hates people and he hates books, but his, his only thing he knows how to do is to run this crappy secondhand bookshop. Um, it's, it's,
0: it's like he hates people. He hates running the bookshop, but he owns the place. Yeah. And, and it's, it's like how it, it, it's like almost like Orwellian, you know or, or O. Henry and it's a complete irony. It, he's almost a tragic character. Why just again? It's just the
2: frenziness of General Moran's performance of of the character.
0: Uh-huh. Um, it's
2: an episode where they write decide they're going to write a children's bestseller because that's where all the money is. Oh, God. And he's like, "I'm going to write it, and I co-write it with myself." And he's there with his two typewriters, like battling away. <laughs> and he like comes away, and he, like a few minutes later, and Manny's there with this huge manuscript. And he's like, "I think it may be a little excessive at a thousand and one pages," <laughs> <laughs> and he's like. I don't understand what you don't get. It's perfectly straightforward. We've got the former Russian scientist who gives it all up to become a lens grinder in Minsk and falls in love with investigative journalists who's sent to track down his shadowy past. And he's like... And uh, Manny, his little assistant there, he's like, I know, but it may be a little advanced for, like, the seven to eights.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just the idea of Bernard trying to write a children's book. I mean... (laughs) What does Bernard know about children?
2: I think yeah. I think we're gonna sit down on one of these episodes and we'll look at black because we 'cause We're gonna
0: have to we're gonna have to at some point. It's, it's certainly it okay.
2: been sitting on the board as one I've wanted to do, so I feel that it's sooner or later we will be paying a visit to that that bookshop. Uh huh. Um I
0: mean has there been anything else or not really. Um I think I might also be starting in the thick of it. I watched about fifteen minutes of the first episode of the in the thick of the thick of it. Uh yep. really just to kill some time before other things happened. And uh yeah, I got to hear Peter Capaldi use the phrase, um, more useless than a Marzipan dildo, which uh Yeah, you know.
2: That's a whole new management style you can learn from in the thick of it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I was, um, I'm really kind of, kind of surprised that there isn't really like a Malcolm Tucker series of, uh, books, uh, how to manage people like Malcolm Tucker. <laughs> yeah. But no, uh, that's pretty much what I've been up to. What okay. about you?
2: It's, again, it's been a, a very thin on the ground sort of week. Um, Unreal wrapped up its second season, which was great. Um, which, which show? unreal oh okay yeah which i think since it started its second season i think every episode that we've recorded while it's been on that sort of run we've pretty much uh talked about it in some way or another right i think Um, it was
0: the last episode where we had talked about like the black lives matter style episode yeah
2: and it's funny the fact that at the end of each season you have this shot of like the two main conspirators, um, sort of sitting on, lying back on sun lounges as they sort of play up, mull over what they basically spent the last season doing. And this season we had the same ending shot, but now it's four people. And I wonder by the end of season three, how many people are going to be on sun lounges by the end of the season? As yeah. This clearly seems to be the way, but, um, it's been an absolute standout season for Sherry Appleby, who plays, uh, Rachel, the main producer on it. And in particular, Constance Zimmer, who plays Quinn, who uh-huh. I feel in her future is going to turn up as a Bond villain. <laughs> because essentially what she's doing is playing a Bond villain on this show, but within the confines of a reality TV show. Because uh, she's absolutely ruthless. There's nothing that she won't do. And there's been more backstabbing and portrayal over this these two seasons than I think Game of Thrones managed in six seasons. So Wow. It, there's always someone ready to stab someone else in the back, and you never know which way it's going to go. And I think Season 2, while perhaps more of a slow burn than the first season, has been perfectly great uh, sort of trash viewing, and I've enjoyed it tremendously throughout. So, uh, yeah, if you have Amazon Prime, definitely check out Unreal. Yeah, um, I've
0: heard a lot of good things about it.
1: Mm,
2: and perhaps because of watching Unreal, I've actually started... When it finished, we went straight into watching uh, the MTV dating show, Are You the One? Okay. Um, Well, basically, you have these uh, 10 guys and 10 girls, and they're in this sort of real-world apartment. And basically, they've been scientifically matched up with each other. So each person has a perfect match in this house, but they don't know who it is. And they basically have to go on dates and stuff. But being these sort of vacuous reality TV fodder people, basically everything's gone to shit. around the first episode and there's people throwing tantrums and falling for the wrong people and it's probably the greatest trash viewing you can have. (laughs) Um, And I think you, while people frown on reality TV shows, you do sometimes need to have that sort of trash that when you're having your evening meal or just don't want to watch anything particularly heavy, it's Uh great to sort of watch something that's so perfectly trashy and enjoyable to watch. Just watch these 10 people who have got who could easily so find out who everyone's perfect matches in. I would say within five episodes, but because no one wants to nail down any particular strategy, it's just watching them like run around like rats in a maze, and it's just fantastically trashy to watch. On the sort of fringe comedy side of things, um, Dice finished up its first uh, season here in the UK. I don't know if you've seen the show. It's uh... I, I've
0: heard of it. Um, I have heard of it. He was kind of an omnipresent figure in the kind of culture in the early 90s, and I really did not like him. Okay. I found him really... He was one of those people you liked or you hated, and I was very much in the hate camp. Yeah, I mean... This is... I, I've heard his new his show is kind of a little bit more self-aware... Um, I, by, I'm aware that he has a show, but I have not seen it.
2: Okay. Um, I mean, it basically follows this fantastic fantasy version of Andrew Dice Clay, as you said, the again fringe comedian. And it picks up basically the role he was playing in the sort of last two seasons of Entourage and expanded it into his own sort of spin off show, even though this show has got nothing to do with Entourage. There's no attachment in any way, but it's the same sort of fantastical character and we basically see uh, Dice now and he's basically now the fading comedy icon and he's living out his life in Vegas um, amassing gambling debts to various casinos and basically trying to live his life off what sort of legacy has left but it's very sort of self-aware it's interesting to see how Dice plays it because he doesn't play it as his comedy persona, he admits in numerous episodes that like, um, cause on the first episode he's going to, I believe it's his cousin's gay wedding and his cousin's, bro- um, husband to be basically is like lambasting him for of Like, Oh yeah. You call like women piglets and stuff. And he's like, no, that's my comedy persona. It's like, you're wearing fingerless gloves. He's like, I'm sorry. Our wardrobes are interconnecting. It's been a surprisingly smart show than you would expect from the guy who gave us, um, Hickory Dickory Doc, My Girlfriend Ran Up My Cock. Right. Um, that's sort of the Dirty Limerick guy. And that very sort of Brooklyn, sort of born and bred sort of guy. And it's been a surprisingly good series. It's only six episodes long, but it's got some nice, smart writing on it. It doesn't dumb itself down. And you've got a really, some interesting cameos in it, um, such as the Mind Freak himself comes up. Chris Angel turns up Chris and does Angel. an episode. Agent Brody turns up. And he basically follows uh, Dice Clay around to try and get in the mindset cause he wants to play this Dice Clay character and basically becomes like his doppelganger um, to the okay. point where he turns up randomly in Dice's house and he's watching him have sex and he, like Dice turns over to see him watching the corner and he's like, oh, don't mind me, just carry on. And it, he, he's like, at one point stapling Agent Brody to the bed to stop him running off. It's this uh, wonderfully... Bizarre sort of comedy, but it's it's worth checking out. If in the six episodes, it's not something that's going to really eat into uh, your watching schedule too much. The only other main thing would obviously be the SummerSlam weekend for wrestling fans. I got way too emotional watching NXT, especially Bayley versus Oscar. Um, the whole event, again, I just got way too upset about. And uh, I'm probably more emotional than you're supposed to get over a fake sporting event, but as I say, I'm not going to uh, turn this into obviously when we did uh, when we covered the WrestleMania thing, we spent 40 minutes talking about wrestling instead of cool TV. So needless to say, uh, SummerSlam, the SummerSlam weekend was was great. It was uh, I feel NXT once again stole it again with Brooklyn too. Uh, there were some great matches on there and some. It's nice obviously seeing the new roster for the year going ahead. Obviously, finally finding their place for the most part. So,
0: uh-huh.
2: but. um yeah, I mean, did you watch SummerSlam? Or you uh... no, no, not really a wrestling fan. That's fine. Um, I'm still eager to obviously hear the results of the Summer Shame uh, uh-huh. sweepstake that uh, the guys over Virtual Pros are running. The stakes for this year, the loser is having to wear not only a horrible wrestling shirt but also do some horrible fan art as well. So, I'm looking forward to the next episode to find out the results of. Um, who obviously ends up wearing the horrible wrestling shirt this year. And whether <laughs> it's going to beat the pink Buff Bagwell shirt that... Uh, I think it was Al that had to wear last year, and it was basically um Buff the Vampiro Slayer, but it was absolutely appalling, so...
0: Buff the Vampiro Slayer. Yeah. That's oh, a CW boy. CW
2: throwback for you.
0: Yeah. But, yeah. Now, I don't really watch wrestling, but I... um. I hear what happens. Yeah. Um, I, I, I have a bunch of friends who are into it, like Brian. And, you know, Brian has a Facebook group, which I belong to. And there's a lot of wrestling discussion on that. So I do pick up a lot of stuff just simply by osmosis. But um, a lot of it is just um, I don't have. Um, I don't know if they run the, the shows, the like the daily and weekly shows over here on, like, Hulu or anything, because I don't have cable, I cut the cord, and yeah. um, the, the obviously so much uh, writes on the paper, so much of the, 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 I guess the ecosystem is based on the pay-per-views.
2: Um, it's hard to say now, because obviously with the network, it gives you all the pay-per-views as part of your subscription. and
0: They have a WWE
2: network now? Yeah, they have a whole network. It's like Netflix, but for wrestling. Huh. And uh, they obviously have... You end up getting like the weekly shows like a month later because of okay. the contracts they have. So yeah, you know, it's still the place to go if you wanted to watch it online. But they have like their net, the NXT shows, and they have a lot of original programming where they look at like historical events or and do like countdowns and sort of um, original programming with where they have like the Stone Stone Cold Steve Austin podcast, where which is great because they break kayfabe. So You have wrestlers obviously admitting that it is fake and they Uh talk about their craft, which is just absolutely fascinating to listen to. And it adds to, obviously, when you listen to things such as like the Chris Jericho podcast and they talk about the where you're hearing about the art and what goes into matches and how they plan things. So that sort of making of the sausage style presentation it's yeah there's a lot of interesting bits and pieces uh on there and they've just uh started a new reality show with mick foley called holy foley which <laughs> i've yet to watch but uh i've heard some good things about so uh yeah if you're if you're a wrestling fan, it is great because it allows you to watch things as and when it suits you rather than having right. to like tape things or stay up till five in the morning it it gives you a more flexibility and a better relationship with the material when, uh yeah, it's it's, uh, it's it's just great for ourselves here in the UK who obviously don't want to stay up until 1 in the morning watching wrestling. Well, it starts at 1 in the morning to watch wrestling. Right, here, so. right. Um, when Facebook, obviously, that I'm going to wake up at 5 in the morning, it kind of makes it a bit more manageable for myself, so. Yeah. Well,
0: but some of the at least some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. Like I said, I'm not really into wrestling itself, but a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff I find kind of interesting. Yeah. So, huh. um,
2: Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it for this this sort of section of uh, what you've been watching. I think, obviously, the best thing for us to do now would be to move on to the first of our selections. Uh, This one was obviously chosen by yourself, Lacky, and that's an episode of The Prisoner. So, I mean, why don't you obviously introduce uh, the episode you've chosen there first?
0: First of all, uh, if you're listening to a cult television podcast and need me to explain The Prisoner to you... (laughs) I probably shouldn't, um, but I will anyway. The Prisoner is, uh, I think it's a 17 or 18 uh, episode series that ran in, I think, 67 and 68. Um, Kind of a sort of, kind of, sort of, but not really depending on who you talk to, a follow-up to uh, Patrick McGowan's star-making vehicle. Uh, In Britain, it was, uh, I think it was called Danger Man, and in America it was called Secret Agent. Um, and um, gave us the theme, one of the greatest theme songs of all time, Secret, Johnny Rivers' "Secret Agent Man." Uh, in the uh, every episode, well, almost every episode of The Prisoner basically gives you uh, pretty much a rundown of what the basic setup is: is that um, Patrick McGowan plays um, an unnamed man who had a sensitive and important position. Somewhere within the British intelligence community, one day, for reasons that are never made entirely clear, he resigns, and basically, um, some shadowy group kidnaps him uh, and 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 takes him to a place known only as the village, uh, which was uh, filmed at a uh, resort in I think Wales. Yes. Um, and uh, basically, it's sort of like a. Uh, it's sort of like a psychedelic '60s Kafka prison. <laughs> um, nobody refers to each other by their name. Everybody is identified by a number. Uh, Patrick McGoohan's McEwen char- character is number six, the leader of the village at any given time, and it changes from episode to episode. There's only a couple of actors who played uh, the character. Played the p- character in the position more than once is known as number two. The Overriding goal, the overarching goal throughout the series is for number two, is to quote unquote break number six to find out why he resigned and what information he had. Number six's overriding goal starts off to escape from the village and then later turns into to find out who is in charge of the village who number one quote unquote is. we never see number one until the very end of the series. Um, so like I said, this is, this is a show that's very much in, in a sort of weird sort of British psychedelic tradition. This is uh, I watched this episode which is called free for all that's usually reckoned to be go early on in the run of episodes, but there's not even a general consensus of what episode you're supposed to watch, what order you're supposed to watch the episodes in, other than that everybody says you watch Arrival first, and um, I think it's Once Upon a Time, and I don't remember the last name of the last episode, but there's two episodes you watch last, and um, everything else, because the episodes were shot out of order, and because this was an ITV show, the in be, this was back, I, I don't even know if you guys had BBC Two, Back in 1967, um, but so this this is a show that ran uh, where the episodes ran in different orders depending on what part of the country you were in, um, and then of course it got licensed. To, I think CBS uh, in the United States they ran it in a completely different order. Um, this is a this is a show that that is definitely. Um, this is definitely a show that operates on a few levels and the best episodes of the prisoner um, really have this kind of multi-layered thing going on where on the one hand, if you just kind of want to sit back and just sort of let all this trippy stuff wash over you, you can operate it on that level. You can operate, you can watch it on a level as a, as a typical, although somewhat quirky drama Or you can basically play the game along with it, try to, along with the show, try to figure out what bits mean what and what the puzzle is and how everything kind of fits together. The episode uh, that that we watch for this is called Free for All. And in it, uh, this particular episode's number two. Uh, played by, um, I've only ever seen him in this. I've heard his name, uh, and it tells know how well known he was as a character actor. But played by uh, Eric Portman, um, the number two basically is put up for election, and there's a uh, uh, basically he talks number six into running for the position, running against him uh, number two, which was Patrick McGowan, um, <clears throat> who no person would created. And um, directed this episode, and actually also wrote it under a pseudonym, uh, basically to indulge in some rather interesting political commentary. There's a, a brilliant scene in the um, early on in the show, in the episode where a couple of newspaper reporters are interviewing him uh, for the the, the, the village um, newspaper, and uh, they're asking him his questions, all these questions like. What is your position on, you know, village security? All of that is his, his. response is no comment, and they'll just say intends to make village security a high priority, and it's to, to the point where um, they're being kind of driven throughout a, on a, throughout the village on a golf cart um, during this whole interview, and by the end of their, they they at um, at the end of the, the the car trip, they end up at the 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 kiosk or whatever of the news vendor who rips off a, a sheet of newsprint and shows number six this printed interview so his you know his answers were never it was you know the obvious you know the implication here is obvious that this whatever he actually answered the questions you know was never ever you know ever going to be the point the point is that the, you know the whole story was you know written and printed before anybody bothered to, talk to him. And it's, um, it's 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 interesting it, it kind of sags in the middle as a lot of kind of hour-long or 45 minute long dramas from this era do there's a lot going on at the beginning a lot going on at the end the middle of the episode is um, kind of deals with this sort of bizarre kind of attempt to kind of drug number six and kind of overwhelming him into accepting uh, kind of like a place in the civic, you know, kind of like the civic hierarchy of the village. Um, and I'm never entirely sure what, how this this plan is supposed to go for, for the larger, you know, the, the village management's larger plan of trying to figure out why he resigned. But, and then, but it, it's got some, again, some really trippy visuals. There's a, a scene where um, number six is being, kind of like interrogated by a man in a tuxedo jacket and trying to be trying to be um coerced into giving up information and the the the, the progress of the the interrogation is um kind of depicted on a, a, a reverse screen uh, like a like a, a screen with a light behind it which shows a man with two planks like leading towards his head i know i'm not even remotely explaining this satisfactorily and there's like a square going and a circle going towards his head depending on how much progress so i mean so you have these things that are some you know you know symbolic it and obviously symbolic um the um the village motto or the village kind of like salutation be seeing you with the uh, the sort of um circle and forefinger uh the thumb and forefinger circle in front of your eye which is i guess an actual um old christian kind of like almost like a secret handshake that dates back to like the the days when you know christianity was still a mystery cult and had to um actually kind of hide um it was that was kind of like the secret handshake um but every so often it'll throw you just for a loop with some bizarre stuff like we talked about Rover being one of the, the, the more interesting kind of visual conceits of the show, which is um, the village is set, situated on, a, on, on a, a beach, and whenever anybody gets too far out from the village, particularly if it's in anywhere, really, when escaping, um, th- this gigantic... What it is is just basically it's a weather balloon will kind of be inflated and somehow return the escapee to the village i guess it was actually a uh, supposed to be like a hovercraft type prop which they actually built and on the first day of shooting uh it sank into the sea and kind of be left in a kind of like high and dry without any real light some someone in the production team uh that happened there was like a like a military or scientific supply store Next, nearby, and they figured that would be something they could do. They could get the weather balloons. So, one of the more trippy things happens towards the end of the episode where uh, number six is being chased and he comes across a group of men in a cave apparently worshiping Rover. So, but I mean, it, it's an interesting little thing, it's definitely of its time um this is the sort of thing that you wouldn't even remotely make anything like this like it today it's it's very trippy it's, it's like i said it's very much of a a sort of british um psychedelic tradition that also includes things like the wicker man what what are your thoughts on it
2: well i mean the prisoner is a show i watched a long time ago um and it was a favorite of my dad's and it's Kind of a shame we never got a chance to re-watch be it before we before he passed. It was one of the shows that we said that we would go back and revisit. So I never got a chance to actually watch it with him. We watched it. He watched it when it was on its original run, and he used to talk a lot about his love for this this show. I think he was like he was very fond of the strangeness and the fact that your your main deterrent for keeping people in the village is a giant balloon, um, and Watching it now, and especially after seeing the Simpsons parody that they did uh, in the episode The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes, where Homer gets sent to the village, and he basically defeats uh, Rover the Giant Balloon by popping it.
1: Um,
2: (laughs) And the the scientist in the episode's like, what made you think a giant balloon was going to stop anyone? Uh Um, It kind of broke the series for me now, so watching it now, all I can think of is just <laughs> Why doesn't he just pop the giant balloon, but no, this episode um watching it now it's as i said it is so surreal and and weird and it you can see that when you when you watch this that this is clearly what the makers of lost thought that they were doing mm-hmm. um and I love the fact that this was a show that they originally intended to go for about thirty six to twenty six episodes um but McGrewin felt that the material would get stretched too thin, so they chopped it down to 17 episodes of wonderful confusion. Um, Uh And it's a show, as I said, it's very unlike anything else, in the fact that it does have all these different layers, and it's a show that we would be more accepting of today, especially because we like shows which don't give you all the answers straight away, and that build up over time and slowly reveal the mysteries. With the person, I think by the end of the 17 episodes, I think a lot of us were still none the wiser with what was supposed to be happening. Uh-huh. Um, the fact that we had this connection to Danger Man, um, even though has frequently went on record to say, no, it's completely separate. And the fact that if we made it a direct sequel to Danger Man, then we would have to pay the creator of Danger Man royalties, which obviously they didn't particularly want to do. Right. Um, but it is very hard to sort of detach the two. Um, especially when you look at an episode episodes of Danger Man, there's an episode called Colony Free, where the main character infiltrates this spy school in Eastern Europe during the Cold War. And it's basically a school in itself in the middle of nowhere, like the village. And it's said to look like a normal town where the pupils and instructors mix like any other city and Uh that's the instructors like virtual prisoners within this this sort of village Um, the village itself is also based on like the World War II resort like prisons such as Inverner Lodge where they would put these people into this village and it would be kind of like, like a resort sort of setting compared to sort of like a more traditional sort of prisoner setting and it fascinates me the different ideas that have obviously come out as to what the prisoner's about uh one of my favorite ones is the fact that it's all in age it's all in number six's head right that the different people we see coming in are actual like doctors trying to cure him
1: mm-hmm.
2: um and this is all these different characters are are either doctors or people he's, these walls he's created to stop himself getting better and that is sort of in a way revealed and i'm just going to say we're going to just there will be spoilers throughout this episode for both the for both uh, the prisoner and the massive horror episode we're covering but when you get into the final episode and we finally get to meet number one and it's basically number six he's looked back and it's himself this is sort of the reaffirming uh, reaffirming the idea that you know it's all in his head right um, there's also obviously the theory where it's this idea that, uh, the, the main character in uh, danger man, Drake had commit had during his service submitted a proposal for creating the village as a way for retired secret agents to live out their sort of final years without risk of being captured by enemy forces. And it would be like this retirement home for secret agents and that Drake would find that, um, that the village had obviously been set up, but it had been used as this way as like an interrogation center and prison camp um and that this was obviously gonna this would be like the way that they would uh, that they would tie into it. and that the idea of number six would actually be no mystery at all right. um it would just be that Drake was just a secret agent who'd quit
0: and and that certainly was the um that certainly was the thinking of this the the series script editor George Markstein, even though he later had. Of falling out, yeah, with um, with with uh, with McGowan.
2: I mean, it's again, it seems to be confirmed in like when you look at the early episodes, such as like Arrival, Once Upon a Time, uh, which is obviously best watched at the end, as you said, uh, and the Chimes of Big Ben. Um, number six makes reference to his resignation due to being a matter of conscience, uh, right? And the that it was due to his own peace of mind that. Um, he basically got to the point where he felt he knew too much and that's why he had resigned and that he was his former employers that had put him into the village as a way of sort of keeping him quiet. Um, Obviously not expecting him to go and stare at things the way he obviously does over the course of the series. And I feel that with this plot that we obviously see with him being elected as this, this candidate for number two, that in a way it's them trying to control his mind that mind control is very much a big theme of this episode and we see the various various ways that they go such as when he's undergoing the testing and she said before where you got the circle line and you got the square line and they move depending on if he's telling the truth or not and it's their way of obviously saying trying to interrogate him and when you see him later on he's just like robotically giving out his sort of proposals of how he would run the village uh-huh. Um, this idea that you know this is him showing you that they are getting in his mind and when he goes for like the drink with number two that these are all different methods of mind control that they're trying on right. it um i think that this is like the big plan that they had
1: right um
2: only for it to obviously fall apart that once he gets into position number two and he's like given this power and control over the village his first instinct is to go and press all the buttons on the yeah. mind control panel to try and uh, liberate the village uh, only for it to obviously turn out to be this ultimate trap and the fact he's paired up with this slavic speaking woman this woman who speaks no english um, or so it seems um that was the biggest confusing part it's like why are they giving him this assistant who speaks no english who when she gets into the number two control panel basically flips out and starts attacking him and start and again, pressing all the buttons on the controller and just being a general dick.
1: Uh-huh. Um,
2: I wonder what her purpose was in this whole plan, but obviously by the end of the episode, we find out her greater purpose in, in the uh, greater set right. sort of things. And the episode also, you did obviously mention already the fact it does have that sag in the middle, and I guess that to counter that, we do have the half-assed escape sequence where he tries to escape in the, in the speedboat, uh-huh. Which was a nice little action sequence, and we get probably the earliest example of waterboarding when Rover is basically drowning him while smuggling yeah. him at the same time. That was a nice little touch. And but um, the episode itself, it's it's got some interesting moves, but I feel felt that you could have hacked this down to thirty minutes, and it would have
0: been a lot stronger. Yeah, um, but I think I, honestly, that's something I think you can say a lot about uh, 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 about a lot of the. What generally people put towards the beginning of the run of the prisoner. There's very much this kind of formula to what I am forced to call the early prisoner episodes, where they set up a situation. And this, this kind of setting up and resolving the situation is the, the bulk of the, the, the first act and the final act. And the second, the middle act, is a lot of running around and an escape attempt and bringing up Rover and all that. Yeah. It's not that it isn't, you know, the first time you see it. It isn't, again, not to say that it isn't, you know, visually arresting or or startling, but it's it's once you've, if you've binged on The Prisoner, or if you've watched the series a few times, you know, I was watching this with a friend, so I would have just, if I had been watching this alone, I would have just been like, okay, I can fast forward the next 10 minutes. But yeah, I think this one, I think this one really encapsulates really well a lot of the, the basic, under all themes of the show, the mind control and not just the overt mind control, um, which also comes up other in other episodes, like my personal favorite of the the series, which is a, B and C, but also kind of like the social, like the peer pressure, you know, the pressure, you know, it's, it's, I, I've always felt that probably the, the overriding theme of the prisoner is kind of like the, the pressure, not just mind control, or the, the ways in which society and individuals are controlled, not just through overt mind control, but also things, through things like social pressure and social conformity. Um, and uh, the, you know the, the struggle of the individual, of, of a person to be an individual within society. And I think even the final episode, the final revelation, that number six is number one really kind of allegorically states we all in in many ways we all are our own jailers and the final the final um you know shots of the series to you know to go back um where he go you know he escapes and he goes back home only for his door to make that or, you know his how, how the front door of his house to make that sinister automatic closing door sound that the 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 doors in the village make I mean, just to obviously discuss the visual
2: style, I love the visual style of the Prisoner. It's one of those few retro cult shows that, despite its age, um, still looks really cool now. Uh Um, I love the fact that you've got them in the black and white uh, striped suits. Yeah. Um, I think that's really cool. I love, like, just the the fact it's said in this this picturesque seaside village. Um, And as you said, like, the secret handshakes and And the BCNU hand um, hand monocles, right? Which I think is just a very British thing. um, Certainly, if you look at any sort of trade industry, be it building or morticianing or butchers or like plumbing or carpenters, within those industries, you will find that there is a lot of organisations within them. Sort of secret organizations, you could call them, where there's all these like groups of secret handshakes, and they watch over one another. Right.
0: Plus, the, the this Mace- elder generation. Freemasonry obviously being yeah, yeah. the the probably the most visible and most you know common commonly coming to mind.
2: Yeah, I mean obviously like things like Freemasonry, and that I think Carrie is obviously as you identified already in in the show, and I think that's just a very British thing to have. Uh, some sort of salute or hand gesture within this group of people. Um, In this case, as I say, it's the hand monocle, the be seeing you greeting that that everyone addresses each other with. And I I think it's just the, the braveness of the show, the fact it's so sure in itself that it can go on these unusual sort of jaunts, really. The fact that we've got two guys on a seesaw in the main control room uh-huh. Um, what purpose they serve, I don't know. Um,
0: yeah.
2: But but it's kind of cool to see him there. Um, it's like, how does the control room work? I mean, you kind of got these glimpses of how things potentially could work, but nothing's... There's no feeling that anything has to be explained. It's always left uh, for the audience to sort of piece together. And you can see why it's remained this sort of cool favourite. And the fact it was like named like number 10 in one of the most important things in sci-fi right uh, in fact its legacy still is still so prominent even the, after all this time
0: the dvd set uh box sets that i have the ones they were issued by a&e back in the early 2000s they actually advertise it as being television's first masterpiece yeah you know and i that that's obviously that's a bit of a that the, the, There's been a bit of little contention with that. If anything, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of people who were aficionados of like television drama in like the '50s, like the early works of. Uh, there was a golden a era of television in the America, you know, in America that that's where Rod Serling, you know, got his start. um Would probably beg to differ with that, but it's like this is in many ways the archetypal cult show. Mm. Um, this is the sort of, I mean, we still have this kind of, it set up a template that, um, is in many ways probably more, more in use now than it had been. I mean, I think this kind of, the idea of this template of having something like this gradually reveal itself over the course of however many episodes, you know, we're, we're familiar with that now because of things like Lost. Um, and, uh, you know. Um, but we don't really have, you know, there, there really isn't a whole lot between like 67 and the late 90s or, you know, you just have, we'll have things like, you know, Twin Peaks and stuff like that. But it's definitely, you know, it's definitely shown its influence. Yeah.
2: I would say Twin Peaks, again, is another clear sort of show that you can compare it to. Um, right. Both, I mean, both shows are wildly different than one another. But the way that they choose to tell their story, um, the visual style and obviously the visual fluff for both shows especially, yeah, um, they're very comparable. So I would and, say-
0: and in particular, both McGowan and David Lynch in their shows, they have this sort of aesthetic, which is contemporary to the time that it's made. On the one hand, but on the other hand, also has this sort of little bit of the sort of retro theme running do it. You know, with Magoo, and you see this sort of coexisting of 60s psychedelia with things that that evoke like earlier periods of British history, like the the, the emblem of the village being the penny farthing bicycle. You know, everybody has a badge. Everybody in the village has a badge with the number superimposed on this penny farthing va- bicycle. Or, you know, some of the things like the, you know, like the, there's a, like a, things that just kind of have this sort of like almost archaic connotation. Like the, uh, there's an episode called Checkmate with a, a human chessboard or with naming like the village newspaper, the Tally Ho, you know, and then compare that to David Lynch, who will put a lot of like 50s aesthetics uh, in his in his shows. He'll have he'll use rockabilly. Music, he will, um, he will like the, the rockabilly, you know, ref, you know, the thing is the, probably the most pronounced with his, uh, you know, in things like, you know, Wild at Heart or Angelo Battalamenti's will have that sort of twangy guitar, even to the extent of having people on in Twin Peaks like Chris or in his shows like Chris Isaac, <laughs> you know, and who, who again has this very sort of retro thing. It's again, it's contemporary, but it's also retro. Yeah yeah and that i think in many ways is the the sort of hallmark of of that sort of particular brand of surrealism okay
2: i mean i have to obviously ask the asking the question and did you see the remake that they did
0: i think i saw one episode of it
2: okay um,
0: i didn't one of these days i suspect i should probably go and go through it it looked interesting but it didn't look – it looked – I don't know what to say about – I don't know how to really say it. But it looked, it looked interesting on the one hand, and I wanted to – I really kind of was kind of interesting how they'd translate it into like a modern kind of like contemporary aesthetic. But on the other hand, it never really seemed to – it, what I saw, if it never really seemed to kind of gel into something that made me say, okay, now you have to watch this.
2: Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, I didn't, I thought until recently, when I was doing the research for this episode, that it never had a final episode that was axed partway through, so I watched the first three episodes, and I, I sort of got the wind that it had been axed. Um, so I thought, well, what's the point in watching a show that's not going to have an ending? So I, I kind of tapped out, but I mean, it had essentially everything going for it. I mean, you had Jim Caviezel as number Uh six. You had Ian McKellen as number two, and he's like really out there number two. Right. Um, He was sort of playing by his own sort of rules within this version of the village. And the version of the village in this uh, this uh, remake from 2009, it's basically uh, set in in this sort of like desert sort of setting.
1: Uh-huh. um
2: it's not like this sort of seaside village that we obviously have in the original series
1: yeah
0: uh, I kind of what I had seen of it I kind of got this idea that it was a sort of gated community out in the middle of a wasteland
2: yeah and yeah it um it it just did it just did nothing for me um right. there was there was nothing really there to grab me it's kind of it had the same weirdness going on there and when I've obviously just Redhead, what was the end game for the series, it's sort of like, yeah, that just sounded absolutely awful.
1: So I was kind of glad
2: that I didn't watch the final three, but as you said, I, I think it's one that I'm probably going to come back to at one point. And uh-huh. as we've obviously been having this discussion about The Prisoner, I can't help but think that Wayward Pines, especially the first season, was basing a lot of its style off The Prisoner.
0: That 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 would make sense.
2: Certainly... This idea of this character being trapped within a village that he can't escape. The idea that, as it goes on, he finds out, he finds out, and becomes part of the inner workings, as we obviously see with Number Six. And as the series goes on, he gets exposed to more of the sort of inner workings, as we see in this episode. He sees like the control room for Number Two. And even though Wayward Pines certainly isn't as clever as as the prisoner, and certainly his second season proved it kind of had all its ideas burnt out in the first season the prison the person i think over this 17 episodes it throws more interesting <laughs> ideas than most se- most uh, shows in about four seasons right um even if on your first watch as with like twin peaks you're probably not sure what you've watched and it's by going back talking it over with other fans that you sort of piece it together and i think that's where the the joy of the prisoner lies. It's it's the discussion. Uh-huh. It's being given these pieces and going away and and figuring out, like you know, the four fled zeppelin album, what the cover's supposed to mean, or right, like what the tarot cards meant for the uh, smashing pumpkins uh, melancholy and the infinite sadness. Like w- right. these sort of things we don't get now, where you're given pieces of a puzzle and you you go away with the community and figure it out between yourselves. Right. I think I think it's something I would like to see more, but. And we can't do it without doing being pretentious as uh recent experiences have sort of proven with like the the likes of lost yeah so yeah it's uh i think this is this is a this is a good episode i i enjoyed it apart from that sort of lag in the middle um uh-huh. it kind of makes me want to go back and rewatch them all from the beginning but it's uh yeah it was it was fun revisiting it and i'm i'm glad that we did this one cool um, we're going to take a quick break now when we return though we're going to be looking at the episode of the Masters of Horror Homecoming, directed by Joe Dante so we'll see you on the flip side
1: welcome to the Really Awful Movies podcast, a celebration of low budget cinema is another apocalyptical prediction about to come The winds of death sweep across the world and whole continents will be cast adrift in an ocean Hi, I'm Chris, and along with Jeff, we're bringing you the very best and worst of horror, sci-fi, action, exploitation, kung fu, and women in prison movies from the 1970s to today. Be sure and check out reallyawfulmovies.com for reviews, reviews, Interviews, lists, and terrific movie giveaways.
2: And we're back. Uh, To joining me as always is my co-host, Mr. Daniel Lackey.
0: Hi.
2: In our first half, we obviously looked at The Prisoner, the classic Patrick McGurran series. And now we're going to go forward just a little bit, 2005, to the Mojo Reviving Masters of Horror, an anthology series which gave established Masters of Horror uh, the likes of John Carpenter, Joe Dante, John Landis, all these great uh, classic horror directors, a chance to direct mini-movies as part of an anthology series that came under the heading of Masters of Horror. The show itself was put together by Mick Garris, who is probably best known for directing Critters 2, and hosted a, a sort of public access network show, talking to a horror directors, So it's kind of uh, nice that it came full circle and uh, he was able to bring together all these directors to what started off initially as a bunch of, as Jill Landis calls it, a bunch of screwball dinners. This idea of having all these uh, major horror directors come together and just have dinner or go bowling or just do something. And it evolved into doing an <laughs> anthology series very much in the vein of like The Outer Limits or The Night Gallery uh, where each one of them would be given a script and they would be able to go off and create any film they basically wanted using that script. This particular episode we're looking at, Homecoming, is probably one of the most standout episodes of the first season. As I said, it was directed by Joe Dante and it was surprising the fact that being a Dante production, which we would normally associate as being quite light-hearted, sort of fancy free and having like numerous references to like warner brothers cartoons or sort of like 1950s horror movies as we've seen with things such as like gremlins or the burbs this was actually a very sort of serious in many ways political satire in which the dead uh, soldiers of a uh, recent conflict uh, decide to come back from the dead and vote against the current presidency this is uh, an episode when it came out. It's very sort of fitting for the time. We were obviously heading into a very unpopular war with in Iraq. So the fact that we had this show came out and this was the episode that everyone kind of wanted to talk about. And I think in many ways it overshadowed some of the other episodes that were being shown. And we had things such as like John Carpenter's cigarette burns. We had uh, Don Cosserati's incident on and off a mountain road. And more controversially, we had the likes of Takashi Miike, who did imprint an episode that was actually so controversial it was banned uh, from its original TV run, only to then show up as part of the DVD collection. Much like Dario Argento's Jennifer, which again received cuts, in particular to its penis-chomping sequence, didn't sit well with Argento and left him feeling very jaded with the whole experience, though he would obviously come back in the second season and do the episode pelts. Um, like I mean, obviously, you're a horror guy. I mean, you did obviously run the site, the Nomad Gallery, which I know you're in a hiatus at the moment, but I mean, what were your sort of feelings on Masters of Horror, being obviously a horror fan?
0: I actually did the reviews back in the early days of Force Viewing, 2011, I think, did actually go through. I borrowed the Drudge um the Drudgeon actually had this neat little thing where it was, I think, the entire run, both seasons of Masters of Horror, inside uh, and the DVDs were uh, held inside of Plastic Skull, Okay. which was a neat little collector's thing to have, and I ended up borrowing that from watching the entire series. I didn't like Homecoming the first time I saw it. I, I think I gave it two stars. I liked it a lot more this time around. Now, one of the things you you mentioned in introducing this is is that you talked about Joe Dante basically being like a comedy horror director. Yeah. There is a strong streak of satire in almost all of Dante's work, and it often shows itself in the places you wouldn't necessarily always expect it. Like Gremlins 2, um, I think, which a lot of the time gets, I think, really kind of over, kind of like more known for like the goofier things like the the hulk hogan cameo or the 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 the, the warner brothers cartoon uh, kind of cut-ins really i think a take away from a lot of people a lot of people though i think distracts from the fact that and and keeps it a lot of people from noticing just exactly how satirical i mean this this movie uh, gremlins too was a takedown of donald trump Back before we actually realized, you know, twenty-five years before we actually realized who Donald Trump actually was, and this there's there's also you know satirical elements to the to, to this other uh, you know in his other work like howling the howling and so forth. This one, uh, like I said, I really appreciated this one more on the second viewing. Um, it is a brilliant conceit if you don't know what's coming.
1: Yeah, you know,
0: it, it kind of starts off kind of like with a. I always call this the X-Files opening, where it ends, it, 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 the, the, the cold open, um, not that this show has a cold open, but the, basically the first act starts where the show, the episode ends, and then kind of flashes back to how we got there. Um, so it makes you think this is going to be a standard zombie romp. So you're not really prepared for when the zombies show up and all they want to do is vote. <laughs> and it's just, when you realize that, it is kind of like a kick in the teeth uh, and, and kind of, you know, kind of like pulls the rug out from you, under you, from, you know, for what you can expect. The satirical element, it's probably, you know, it's like the satirical element. I mean, a number of these characters are actually based on real people. Yeah. Um, the obvious one, of course, is Robert Picardo's character, who is supposed to be based on Carl Rove. And the character of Jane Cleaver uh, is very, 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 very thinly disguised version of Ann Coulter. It is, I think, a a deft and, and very effective kind of skewering of what a lot of us at the time, this was made about 2005, a lot of us in the United States, and I'm sure around the world, kind of felt was really going on. You know that that basically that we knew we were being fed a line of bullshit. That that we were you know that 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 our our troops were being sent to, you know, halfway around the world, were dying and were killing other people over what we suspected was a line of bullshit, and that what we expected that the people who had started this war yeah. knew was a line of bullshit. Oh, definitely. Um, um, and it, it really, it really kind of sums up that kind of pain and anger that I think a lot of us kind of feel felt at the time. Um, as as a piece of satire, now I don't know what the hell I was thinking five years ago when I gave this two or two and a half stars, but this uh, this obviously impressed me a lot more today.
2: Okay, I mean, you obviously mentioned already the fact we've got these comparisons to real-life figures. I mean, when we look at the unnamed Republican president who's featured here, his appearance is modeled after Bill Clinton, clearly. Right. The voice I only got this time was very clearly George W. Bush. Right. So you've got the, right from the, uh, they're very clear on who they're sort of spearing for this. But yeah, it came out very much, it was a perfect timing really for this sort of, Piece of political side to, to come out mm-hmm. um, because as you said everyone was we were entering into a very unpopular war we were entering into a conflict which we had no reason to be that we could see for wanting to get into this into this uh, sort of conflict other than securing oil interests right. that seemed to be the main thing there was a lot of fabrication of uh, weapons of mass destruction that was of being used and the fact that we were being sending troops in, but we were being able to produce very little evidence to say that our reasons for being there were being sort of justified. And I like the fact that while it's obviously being based around the situation, it's not getting caught up in sort of the politics of the situation. It's focuses more on the fact that the zombies are coming back because that they were wrongly sent to the death. They were they didn't need to die. These soldiers were basically sent there and used as fodder in this uh, greater scheme. And the fact that they're coming back to vote against the president, who obviously ordered for them to be there in the first place,
0: and, 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 and that's it. And and there's there's a key moment in the beginning, towards the beginning, where the the lead character. David Murch, who is a spin doctor for the, the administration, makes a big show of talking about how, you know, if, if these, if, if the, I, I wish these, 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 you know, dead soldiers could come back to life. And if they did, they would tell us that, the, you know, they didn't die in vain. And that is essentially what starts the zombie plague in this. It's just yeah. this wish that this man expresses, you know, somewhat cynically um, and basically that they come back to prove him wrong. There's this great scene late in the in the episode where they're saying you, you're saying it's like so the pe- where they're talking about the, the people, the, the soldiers that did believe in the war aren't coming back to life. They're staying dead. That's ri- not really it's <laughs> not really a, a check, a tick of uh, you know, in our fate, a tick mark in our favor.
2: Now, and I love the fact that we've obviously got uh, David Menger, our main sort of character here, who's, as you said, his wish, if you would have it. That's the sort of mechanic for setting up these zombies, obviously, coming back. And as I said, these zombies, are not after eating brains or attacking people, although we obviously see Rob Picardo get a really quite violent death after he gets into an argument with one of these zombies and basically writes them off as being mindless drones. Right, um, and the fact that the zombies come back, they vote, and then they die. Right, I thought that was just such a great mechanic. The fact that they're coming back, they, their sole purpose isn't to consume brains or eat people or to take over the earth. Or not, it's just to cast their vote, have their voice heard, as they were promised. Right, and that's once they've said that purpose, they're happy to return to return to death.
0: Of course, the incumbent administration ends up stealing the election, yeah. which end, ends up not working out very well for um, in, in this scheme of things. But again, I think really kind of speaks to that. Again, that's evocative of, again, the the the, the fallout from the 2000 you know, presidential election with, you know, with the the um, the weirdness of our of our democracy you know, basically dictated that the person who actually got the most votes didn't actually win the election. Just one of the weird quirks of the American electoral system. And um, left a lot of people, and it was, you know, it was thrown to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, uh, you know, with their conservative majority, handed it to, to to Bush. And again, left a lot of people feeling again kind of helpless and without a voice and again I think that's one of the things that it really really captures I, d- I remember
2: enjoying this episode more when I watched it originally this time I felt that it was more slower but more much more of a slow burn than um, I originally remember it being and I feel that had a lot to do with the fact that obviously our two main sort of actors here we've got um, David Metch is played by John Tenney. Who was obviously in Stepfather from Legion, and we've got sort of uh, Jane Cleaver, who's played by Fear Gill, and the performances here are very TV sort of level. They're not yeah. they're not um, particularly great actors. I think if we, if we were doing a modern comparison, we'd say they're about the same level as someone who appears in like a sci-fi exclusive movie, right? Uh, so something like Nado, It's very borderline between being bad and passable. Right. Um, so when you obviously have a sort of skilled actor and, a, and certainly a Dante regular uh, with like Robert Picardo, it becomes all the more noticeable. And Robert Picardo is absolutely hideous and in this role. And I love the fact that Dante was able to cast Picardo and get around the Canadian rules regarding filming because obviously this was so shot in Vancouver. Right. Now, as we've mentioned before, if you shoot anything on Canadian soil, you have to cast one Canadian actor, as are the rules of, of filming uh, there. So it's great for Dante, who, who's regular, one of his regular actors, obviously is Picardo, who is Canadian. So he was able to get around it without having to cast some, some actor who may not have fitted otherwise. So Right. Um, and yeah, I think it's another great Picardo performance. I mean, this is the guy... If you just look at his work through Dante, you've seen him play one of the most badass werewolves ever. We've seen him play a doctor on, uh, a veteran doctor on Star Trek Voyager. Um, he played the cowboy in Inner Space. Um, and he played uh, Star Killer in Explorers. So he plays all these weird roles. And I think he's like, very much like Brian Cranston in that respect. We sort of know him for some certain roles, but then here he are like, you go for his back catalog and he's like, Oh wow, he was actually in this role. Right. Um, like he was in Small Soldiers. He was like in Legend where he played Meg Mucklebones. And you're just like, Wow, he was actually in these things, I never realized it. So uh, I think it's real credit to his festivity really.
0: Uh-huh. But well, it's it's one of the things that I remember making this this, this having this discussion or making this point very early on in my, my, when I reviewed all of masters of horror, that you had this sort of division in masters of horror between episodes that seemed like short films and episodes that felt like TV episodes, you know, and the ones I, I generally tended to think the ones that felt more like TV episodes were the weaker ones. Um, the particularly the two I, I uh, particularly the two I would always bring out were were Garris's own contributions, because I I don't know in in Britain I'm not you, you mentioned that he's probably best known for he did like a Critters movie, yeah he did
2: Me um, directed Critters too which he I often like question like Gareth's role as a master of horror but I mean you can. Uh, I go back and forth whether he could be classed as it, but he's really been sort of like the linchpin in bringing all these directors together, so right. so that he he has his place within this group. He um, he, he,
0: he has done some 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 stuff. He did um, actually, I think, what he might actually well be most known for uh, are his Stephen King miniseries.
2: Yeah, exactly. Because he did obviously the stand, the stand, and I believe
0: he did the Shining
2: as well. Yes, he did the Stephen King approved version of the standing because King obviously most memorably hated the Kubrick version,
0: uh-huh. He
2: loves the McGarris version, um, Steve, and he also did. You're Des-
0: wrong.
2: But, um, <laughs> oh yeah, I think it's to each their own. Really, I, yeah.
0: You know what? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna criticize, but you know. But um, yeah. I mean, he also did Desperation
2: and the, right is um, if you get the, the DVD box set, which I would certainly urge you to get for Mas- the Master of the Horror set, because the extras, especially for season one, are so fantastic, because they do retrospectives on all the directors, um, as well as behind the scenes for all the episodes as well. So you get a real insight into each of the directors. And it, if you're not familiar with like any of these directors, um, such as like Don Coscarelli, and um, you weren't like, familiar with his Phantasm series, it's great the fact that, it goes through and it shows you clips from his films and it's like gives you this outline of their career and it's like oh well they did this film i'll go and check this out and it was really great in that respect but when you see the mick garris one um one of the interview subjects is ron Pellman. Right. and he, he actually says he comments on the friendship that stephen king and mick garris has and he's like you know maybe if i've been a good boy and done a good job in this interview, maybe those guys would take me for a beer and i can just sit and watch those two in the same room and right I think that's that's a conversation i would love to if see
0: i this. recall correctly actually ron perlman was in sleepwalkers which is the first Garris stephen king collaboration the only um original screenplay uh written specifically for film that stephen king has ever written and um well, they, there's a reason he doesn't write screenplays for films anymore.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you look at, look at Maximum Overdrive... Uh, the oh, film, his directorial effort,
1: yeah. Yes,
2: the film that he basically made uh, purely because the shooter allowed him to use whatever he wanted for the soundtrack, so he basically just had ACDC do the soundtrack. Yeah. Um, which is great, because ACDC makes anything sound
0: better. Definitely, right. they make um, Maximum Overdrive sound better. But yeah, I mean, you know, Mick Garris' real contribution to, uh, I think, to Western culture is the screenplay for Hocus Pocus. So yeah, so you have this sort of kind of interesting dichotomy, and I think that's another reason why Jennifer feels so weird because you've got you've you've got Dario you've got Dario Argento. And, and you've got Dario Argento essentially, like, directing the cast of Wings, you know? <laughs> and it's that sort of thing. It's like, the, it, it opens up a little bit more in season two. If I remember correctly, Dario Argento, his his pelts is, that's the one with um Meatloaf.
1: Yes, it's...
0: Uh... that That's a, a real gonzo one. <laughs> it,
2: but... The problem with uh, pelts is it, it, by the end it's, like, spilled over to unintentional comedy, just because of the performance Meat Loves giving. He's like really great all the way through, and then we got the scene where he essentially skins himself, yeah. um, and falls down an elevator shaft, and I was just I was just in hysterics by the end of that. It was like, yeah, that just didn't work at all. Right. But um, no, in season two, Joe Dante returns again, and... screw solution, right? Yeah, again, it's another serious episode. He does the screw solution, where this plague... Uh, transfers men into killers and they basically have to attack any woman that crosses their path
0: uh-huh.
2: um, and that he throws out this idea that uh, the only way to sort of counter it is by castration and that you've got all these generals who are basically saying oh I'm not gonna tell my men that they have to like give up their manhood and be castrated to, as the only way to combat this this disease but uh no i mean screw fight solution again was just another standout in that yeah episode and especially in the season where we saw a lot of directors return again such as like john Landis who did family uh, toby hooper doing the Damn thing um Stuart gordon doing the black cat and they these were like weaker episodes they didn't seem to have the same sort of mojo that they had I, on the previous
0: ones i thought homecoming was one of the really strong episodes Of the entire, I'm not generally a huge Landis fan, but I really thought Dear Woman and Homecoming were like the highlights of it. It was really sort of weird in that the episodes, a lot of the episodes I expected to like, I didn't like. Like, I was really going in because I'm a big fan of May. I was a big fan of May. I really went into Sick Girl, uh, Lucky McKee's entry. Uh, with, with high expectation, and it just, it's it's not bad, but it, it's just not as good as I'd hoped it to be. I was um a bit disappointed by the Larry Cohen one, because I love, particularly when Larry, Larry Cohen works with Michael Moriarty, like in Q and the stuff, I love those movies. And that one, the, 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 the Feruza Balk was in that one, the one with the hitchhikers and the truckers. Oh
2: yeah, all. pick me up where you go, uh... yeah. The psycho truck driver meets the psycho hitchhiker.
0: Right. <laughs> um, and the ones, like I said, the ones that really walked away, I think I, I was really kind of surprised that my favorites, I think probably were like Dear Woman just cracks me up every time I see it. Mm. You know, it, it's just, it's, it's just, I, there's just something about it. That just, I, I think it's brilliant.
2: Well, I mean, obviously Dear Woman was the, The debut script for by uh, Max Landis, right? uh, Which I know is going to probably upset um, a few people out there because he's a very diverse person, Max Landis. I find. Um, Oh yeah. I feel that he has got he's got something there as a screenwriter, but at the same time, I feel that he needs someone to reel him in right or or to clean up his 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 uh his project because the creativity is there when we look at things like chronicle or american ultra Uh
0: um
2: there is something there um but it's missing something it needs someone to like clean it up or to reel it back Um, right it, it feels like too much and the fact he's like this hyperactive personality as well just certainly doesn't do himself any favors. Let alone the fact his his father obviously is John Landis. Right. So there's obviously this feeling that he's obviously got this sort of backdoor entry into this industry because of obviously what Daddy's done. Right. Um, and that he hasn't gone down the route of changing in his name like David Bowie's son or, with or Stephen Hill. King's son. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Joe, Joe, Hill. Joe Hill. And. Go, like creating this old personality for himself and having his work recognised seemingly off its own merits and and later being discovered for his, his obviously famous connection. Right. Um but yeah, I um I same d I, I don't know. I feel that Max Land has still got something to prove. Um I feel that that he's still finding himself as a writer and that I think he just needs—he needs a better editor.
0: He does. He really does.
2: Um, but yeah, we'll obviously, we we'll obviously uh, see where where his career goes. I mean, at, at the moment at San Diego Comic Con, um, from now on to be known as Nerd Dance, or, <laughs> or basically, or should that be like Nerd Shuffle, whatever you want to call it. But uh, yeah, basically at uh, Comic Con he announced that he's working on the Pepe Le Pew feature film for Warner Brothers at the moment. So,
0: well, that's interesting. Uh,
2: yay. <laughs> but uh,
0: um, yeah. Pepe Le Pew feature. Okay, that's um, that's a series of words that have been formed to make a phrase. I guess so. they don't sound they don't taste like they don't like take like disappointment and ashes in the mouth
2: but okay. i didn't know anyone was particularly excited to see a pebble of the pew movie i mean do we need this like rapey skunk type of
0: movie i'm just one of these people that tends to believe that well, maybe we should just see i heard that they had a space jam sequel in development and i was kind of because space jam was somewhat after my time yeah, it's one of those things where one of the things you get when you, um, well, not you particularly, but me, being kind of like, you know, in my early forties, and i in a pop culture era that, you know, I, I shouldn't say necessarily say dominated, but you know, meeting a, a lot of more a lot of people that are around your age, people who were born in the eighties. Uh, you get this sort of thing. that's like, for example, I was really surprised to find out that there were a lot of people that liked Ghostbusters too. Okay, I... And, and I remember thinking, it's like, but it, 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 I remember thinking, but like nobody liked Ghostbusters too. I like Ghostbusters. Nobody, nobody liked it too. at the time. Nobody likes it now. And it's like, no, there are people who actually like Ghostbusters 2 yes. It's it's one, and there are actually people out there that like Space Jam. I and, don't
2: know who these people are because I hated Space
0: Jam when I watched it as a kid. So, uh-huh. I, it's, it's like, admittedly, it's like I never saw Space Jam. Yeah. So I'm, I maybe I shouldn't be sitting here making remarks about its general quality. But it's, it's just one of those things that it's like Space Jam is now considered one of these like minor classics of like young adult slash children's. It's like the, uh, it, it's it's like it, it's like the Muppet movie of its generation, and I'm just like, huh. There's, you know, so it's like, uh, Warner, you know, I mean, we're definitely kind of in a period now where anybody has these sort of intellectual property assets. They want to, you know, they want to leverage them and create their own cinematic universe, I, I guess, first Salvo. And a, I, I guess if Warner Brothers wants to turn its Looney Tunes characters <laughs> into a leverage them into like an MCU type thing. <laughs> You yeah. know, where, you know, it's like Peppy Le Pew gets a spin-off movie and Pe- Tweety Bird, and then they all come together as kind of like uh, Cartoon Avengers. I'm I don't. i I'm completely rambling now.
2: I don't know. I want a, I want a sequel for Space Jam as much as I want a sequel for Shaq Fu. That's basically where my interest level lies in this one, so.
0: Oh, that's right. Yeah, he made a Shaq Fu movie.
2: Oh, God, the Shaq yeah. Fu video game I, where...
0: I don't even
2: where he goes to Japan to learn Kung Fu. The ancient Chinese fighting style he learns in Japan. Uh, yeah. (laughs) There's actually a site where they're tracking down every copy of Shaq Fu so they can destroy it, so...
0: (laughs) Uh, kind of reminds me of what Roger Waters once said about one of the early Pink Floyd albums, Madam Heart Mother. He said, people, how should it be? When asked how should it be approached, people said, he said, well, it should be, <laughs> you should gather up all the copies you can find and put them in a landfill and dump dirt over them and never listen to them again. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, but yeah, I mean, with this this episode, I mean, is there anything else that you uh, sort of want to bring up? I don't, kind of don't want to go too much into it because I believe there's some really great, twists.
0: Oh, yeah.
2: Uh, um, such as the ending, and obviously when you find out what happened to his brother. Uh, yeah.
0: um, I, I do kind of feel that I, I felt that some of that stuff, like his backstory, was kind of not entirely necessary to the plot, but it, it was still... It, it, I mean, it's still... It, it's something where it, it, it's very much... This is not a subtle episode. Uh, everything that you can say out there that is right out there on the surface. And um, that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing in this case, because it, it it does, like I said, it has a satirical point to make and it makes it very well, you know, especially again, especially if you know who, and, and I don't know, I, I, I don't know if, if the human bacteria colony that is Ann Coulter has made her, has managed to, to show up her way and contaminate your, part of the world where your airwaves, I, I hope not. But on the other hand, you're, you're the country that gave us Milo Shinopolis. So I guess no one country has a, uh, um, a monopoly on these idiots, I guess. <laughs> but I mean, if you know who they, who specifically Jane Cleaver is supposed to be, then it, it makes it all the more interesting. But Uh, yeah, it's, it's not something, so it's, in many ways, I don't think it's something that you can really, and again, not a criticism, that you can really talk a whole lot about, um, just because it it isn't something that's subtle, it is something that's pretty blatant, it's all there on the surface, and you know exactly where, uh, Joe Dante and the screenwriter, um, Sam Hamm, uh, who was like the big it-boy screenwriter, he was, um, he, he wrote the Tim Burton Batman movies, if I remember correctly, and was supposed to be one of the big screen writers of the '90s, and then basically, David Kep, I think, kind of took the position that would have been Sam Hams. Okay. But um, yeah, I really don't have that much to say more about say about Homecoming. It's um, it, it's definitely an interesting kind of snapshot of of how we felt at the time, um, and I think it is really kind of has a sort of relevant in, into what it, it seems where we're heading right now where there does seem to be a, a significant group of people who want to put um this orange-haired meat clown in in office and give him the nuclear football <laughs> and and they think this is a, somehow this is a good idea. Yeah. Um, I that, think that, and I'm I'm just like yeah, no. <laughs> I feel like moss at the beginning of that one episode of the IT crowd where you know, she's, um, what's-her-name, is trying to explain, you know, the period to Moss, and he's just like, yeah, no, 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 and that's pretty much how I feel. <laughs>
2: well, that's fair enough, fair enough. Um, but no, I mean, Master Horror is still a great two-series um, and well worth checking down. I mean, I believe you can get the box sets easy enough, and uh, same if you're a horror fan or sort of uh, into... Into World, to find out more about the careers of these directors, uh, then there's a lot of great stuff on the special features, especially with the first season as well.
1: Uh Um,
2: I would love to see another season of Master of Horror. I know that they tried to reboot it with, I believe, the series Fear itself, uh, which never really took off. But I feel that that's what's currently missing at the moment. We're missing a good anthology series.
0: And definitely I have thought in the past about about masters of horror and, and thought to myself, it's like, who would, who would we have, who would have been some good ones to have done it? Yeah. You know, or who would we get to do it now? Could we get, would, would, Edgar Wright be a good choice to do it? Um, I mean, you know, Edgar Wright, uh, Eli Roth, various people like that.
2: Oh God, that makes me shudder hearing Eli Roth mentioned anywhere near the word master of horror. I mean, he's always self himself there. Um, <laughs> Myself, there was a
0: period of time in which I thought I was actually going to start liking this stuff and it didn't
1: happen.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think for myself it would be people like people from the uh, French extremist movement. So people like Alessandro Age. Yeah. Or for, if most keyly for myself, would be the Soska sisters.
0: The Soska sisters would be good.
2: Um, or the Twisted Twins as they, they tend to refer to themselves now.
0: Yeah, Jen Just, and Sylvia Soska. Yeah. Um. Pascal Loger, uh, who did Martyrs, he would be an interesting one. Uh, I think Edgar Wright, or um, the guy who did uh, Joe Cornish, I think is his name, the guy who did Attack the Block. Yeah. Um, um, and the other
2: one I would love to see would be uh, the director of Hobo with a Shotgun. Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, his name.
2: Who is a, uh, Joe, uh, Jason uh, Eisner. Who- yeah, yeah. He's been doing uh, bits and pieces. I mean, he did, in 2008, he did the great um, short uh, Trevenge about Christmas trees, taking revenge on humanity.
0: Trevenge is, is I have... Oh, God, I still have not seen Trevenge. There was a run, there was, I've had, there was a... a, I was going to, like, short film programs, and Trevenge was always on the program, and I'd always have to either leave before Trevenge was shown... Or Treevenge just never ended up getting shown. It was like a running joke on forced viewing <laughs> that somehow Venge was actually going out of its way to hide from me.
2: Yeah. No, Treevenge is uh, its one I discovered during last year's uh, Old Christmas. Um and I, I really, I thought it was insane. It's got very much the same sort of style as we saw with Hobo and Shotgun. And uh-huh. since then, I mean, he's only really done short sequences. I mean, he was in ABC's of Deaf. He did uh, right. for Young Buck. He was in VHS2, where he did Slumber Party Alien Abduction. Um, and he is currently working, I know he is working on um, a very Walter Hill-inspired um, piece. Um, I can't remember the name, but it's a comic book about very much similar to the vein of the Warriors or the Bronx Warriors. Okay. Um, which, name of it, um, um, I'm trying to remember the, the name, is it's completely escaping me now, but um, yeah, that was the last I sort of heard of him, but he sort of made this huge explosion with his trauma-esque inspired uh, hobo with a shotgun, and then kind of disappeared he kind of went back onto the radar and uh, he's a guy who would, i think he would do really well with master of horror same with lucky mckee i would yeah. love to see lucky mckee come back right um because lucky mckee essentially spearheaded this new generation of horror fi- horror filmmakers right um the other guy that um obviously comes to mind as well would be the director of wolf creek
0: yeah oh, um, yeah yeah that that's another i should know that name but i'm not bringing it to mind right, but McClean. yeah
2: um my obviously my main concern is the fact that when we look at modern horror directors it's the fact that they're so heavily involved in splatter and uncomfortableness yeah be able to give us the sort of subtlety that these old um, these old masters were obviously able to bring with their productions where they're able to put humour and elements of a splatter and and sort of make it very much in the vein of like The Outer Limits and Twilight Zone, but with that horror theming. If we give it to more modern horror directors, are they just going to be too focused on the splatter and the shock than trying to create uh, the same tone that we obviously saw? I don't know,
0: in an environment like that, like a Thai West who really works largely not so much on gore, but like on kind of like atmospherics like a thai west might work very well or adam wingard yeah but
2: yeah i think it uh, remains to be seen hopefully someone will pick up the anthology format and do something with it um i know they tried to do masters of science fiction uh with introduction by Lennon nimoy but they were very again very hit and miss um, yeah um it certainly didn't come close to what we got with Master of Horror. And, um, I don't know about yourself, you but whenever I watch Master of Horror, I have to watch the opening credits at least twice because they're so good.
0: Yeah, that's, it's an interesting... Um, I wouldn't say it's one of my favorite credit sequences, but it's definitely an interesting one. I think it's, as with like,
2: the new House Limits, I just like how the music builds from those, yeah. from those like, carpenter-esque like, simple key piano keystrokes to this sort of uh, throbbing and dominant beast that it becomes uh, before like quietly fading away it's uh, and the the imagery that it's combined with is just it just perfectly sets the mood for what you're gonna what you're gonna get right so uh, but yeah uh, for myself at least master Horror is still I, I'm still a favorite and uh, still show sure that I'm uh, happy to come back and uh, look at so I, would, I would imagine as we've looking at more of these further down the line i I imagine because there are obviously episodes that need to be revisited such as cigarette burns and all the screw fire solutions we mentioned already i think there's there's more to be discussed there than we've obviously sort of touched upon in this episode yeah but um looking ahead to the next episode i mean do you have any idea what you would like to talk about
0: next lucky i do okay Ah, uh, this is one when I when I first got involved in this. This was one that was very heavily, very high. It's been very high on my short list for every 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 um, episode, but never has quite made it till now. Um, I believe on Netflix, it's it's classed as the final episode of the second season of Danger Mouse: The Four Trials of Danger or the Four Labors of Danger Mouse. Okay. Um. This one I picked specifically because this is the episode that introduces Count Duckula.
1: Oh, God,
2: I hate that bloody duck. But uh, no, Danger Mouse, that certainly,
0: uh, certainly wasn't what I was expecting. Danger Mouse, yeah, that's uh, one of the, the seminal. They they ran it. That and um, when I was pretty much glued to Nickelodeon 24-7 when I was a kid, those two shows, though that show and You Can't Do That on Television, um, really... Um really kind of helped warp my tiny little pre-adolescent brain.
2: Cool. Um, for myself, I've decided that we're going to look at... It's going to be also animation, but we're going to look at some anime. Um, we're going to look at the first episode of Cyber City, a 808. And this one I've really picked purely based on the excitement we all had for the Suicide Squad movie. And now, the disappointment we have for the suicide squad movie.
0: I would like to I would like to modify that to the excitement you all had. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I remember saying straight up, I remember saying there is nothing about this film that looks attractive to me, yeah, really, I mean, really, I think i I think any interest I had in in um uh in, in suicide squad was quashed for me when I saw the first pictures of Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn hit the internet, and it's like, wow, they bought her entire co- They bought her entire costume off the rack at a fetish shop. <laughs> uh, Paul Dini, if he were dead, would be spinning in his grave. The series itself, Cyber City, Oedo 808, is
2: very similar in the vein of Suicide Squad in the fact that you've got three criminals who are enlisted into this crime-fighting unit in exchange for reduced sentences. At the same time, they're fitted with explosive collars, so Actually, let's describe it. This is the same as Suicide Squad, but this is better. Uh, We're going to be looking at the first episode of the series called Virtual Death. This is a series I loved back when I first started getting into anime, and I'm really keen to get back into it, mainly because it's one of those titles that kind of had a lot of excitement when it was released, and has, much like the likes of Devilman, Dominion Tank Police... Um, Machine God Corpse or Giant Robo they seem to have like fallen by the wayside as newer titles and certainly more mainstream titles have uh, sort of taken their place and uh, left them sort of forgotten so the
0: all-consuming juggernaut of Naruto
2: exactly if, because it's not shown on Crunchyroll people don't seem to know what it is so we're going to uh, hopefully re-educate some of these uh, these anime kids of today and Bring back some nostalgic memories for the old guard by uh, looking at the first episode of Cyber
0: City Eight Hundred Eight. And uh, how, how much does it resemble Ghost in the Shell? Not much. Okay, Ghost in the Shell is pretty much my my archetypal. Whenever I think anime and cyberpunk, I immediately go to like Ghost in the Shell.
2: Okay, it's it's not as deep as that. It's more of an action anime. Okay. Um, the plot, I would say, is kind of similar to the episode Ghost in the Machine on the okay. X-Files, season one.
0: Okay, um, that one I haven't seen. but Oh, yeah, no, 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 no. I'm thinking sorry. I know what you're talking about now. No, I'm thinking, yeah, that's a season one. For some reason, I was thinking uh, you were talking about one of the um, Willie Gibson written ones. But no, you're talking about, okay, yeah, we're talking about Ghost in the Machine. Yeah, I know that but,
2: one. Um, yeah, I mean, the Cyber City. it's one of my favorites of the whole Cyberpunk collection. I think it's an absolutely great series. It's really fast-paced, lots of action, and uh, I'm looking forward to obviously discussing it on the next episode. But uh, until then, I would like to thank everyone who has obviously supported the show in this first year. Um, Speaking for myself, I I don't know about yourself, Mr. Lackey, but it's been an absolute pleasure and an an absolute joy to go back and re-watch shows or discover new shows that we've obviously covered over these uh, 12 episodes. uh... Oh, yeah,
0: definitely. It was great to it was definitely great to have uh, an excuse to dig out like the old prisoner DVDs or the, you know, hunt down some of this stuff. And uh, you know, anything, any excuse I can get to watch something that's weird and forgotten and obscure um, or, you know, just plain strange um, is, is, you know, I, you know, I may have had some, some like, what the hell was that type reactions. But even then, I, I don't think there's anything we've really watched that I've really loathed.
1: That's, that's uh,
2: reassuring.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I actually, I think the one that was hardest to watch was my, probably the Sapphire and Steel one, which was my pick. Uh, I, I like that, but God, it was just so slow.
2: Yes, it was. Uh, I think that was one of the more difficult ones that we did. Uh-huh. Uh, Japanese Spider-Man is probably one of the more random ones that we did.
0: Yeah, but it, it that, that's just one of <laughs> I'd always heard about it. I'd always heard that they'd done this bizarro japanese asian martial arts thing with other things in it it was like it was finally good to actually be able to like play some things with other things and actually be able to watch it
2: and plus it gave me one of my favorite memes of japanese spider-man hitting the ground with a wrench and then the entertainment spider-man versus ant-man
0: yeah
2: so yeah i've uh I would like to thank everyone, obviously, for supporting the show. It's probably one of the more random show formats out there. And the fact that people have obviously latched on to this idea of us watching weird shows. And uh, come along with us on this journey. We thank you all for your support. In the Uh meantime, uh, you can obviously follow us on Facebook. Uh, Just look for TV Good Sleep Bad. We are on Twitter as well, uh, which you can find at TV Good Sleep Bad. Um, If you've not done already, hit that subscribe button on iTunes. Maybe leave us a review. Uh, some nice words you know, or or a five star rating it all helps um, but until obviously next time I'd uh, like as always to thank my co-host Miss Lackey for joining me And thank you sir and uh, thank you all for listening and this is Double Jones on another edition of TV Good Sleep Bad for my news always to keep it strange <laughs>